I'm Sean Levy, author of The Castle on Sunset. You're listening to Book Stories. You're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about bookstores, the books inside them, and book culture. I'm your host, Vic Singh. Please subscribe to Book Stories on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen. And thanks for helping us spread the word. Coming up, we've got some great new conversations with writers, publishers, and more. Also, if there's a store out there you'd like to hear from or have featured, please reach out. Our Instagram handle is at Podcast, and I'd love to hear from you. Coming up is my conversation with Sean Levy, author of The Castle on Sunset, a comprehensive biography of the famed Chateau Marmont Hotel in Hollywood. An apartment house turned hotel, it has been the backdrop for generations of gossip and folklore. While the city, film industry, and culture have changed around it, Chateau Marmont has endured multiple owners, economic swings, and modernity to not only survive, but thrive. It's bookended the Sunset Strip for generations, and this book provides a great account of its endurance and behind-the-scenes lore. Fun aside, the studio we recorded in is literally across the street from the Chateau and the view outside my window. We literally looked at it while talking about it. Sean's also written books about the Rat Pack, Paul Newman, Robert De Niro, and more. He has a knack for picking really cool subjects, so check out his other work. Here's our chat. Please enjoy and share with a friend. Thanks for listening. What got you to pick Chateau Marmont as a subject for a book? Well, I wanted to write about the whole Sunset Strip, and I was making my case to my agent and my editor at Doubleday, and um, the editor just kind of mused aloud, what about Chateau Marmont? And it was like one of those origami things that you throw in a bucket of water and it turns into a chrysanthemum, like a whole book bloomed in my head immediately. And I knew right away, I didn't know all the details, but I knew what the shape of the book would be like. And I knew that every now and then I could turn the camera from inside the walls of the chateau to the surrounding street and the neighborhood and the culture. So it was just a 20th century history without leaving the block. Sure. Did you take residence in the Chateau Marmont for the book? Did you spend a... I did not. I did not. In fact, I've just come from lunch there, and it's the first time I've been there in the 21st century. Wow. Um, Partly because I live out of town. Yeah. Partly because it's really expensive. Sure. Partly because the hotel wasn't receptive to my initial inquiries, so I thought, you know what? They don't want to participate. God bless. People write books about Abe Lincoln every year, and they get zero access to the guy. I can do this. Yeah. Uh, I feel like a lot of it, for the most part, and correct me if I'm wrong, you could you could scrap together from the public record to begin with, right? The the articles, the press, the sort of the there were some lawsuits that were levied against the ownership, right? And some of it was public record. Yeah, yeah, quite a bit of it's yeah. public record. And you know, it's the twenty first century, and I can get you know the entire Los Angeles Times and entire New sure. York Times on my computer, and I know how to do research on things. Of so course, I. F- I'm a terrier and I'll get the bone, you know, It's if it's there and there's something I want to find out. And, you know, I rediscovered an owner of the hotel. He owned it for 20 odd years and his name was lost to history. And he turned out to be a really crucial guy in the in the continuity of the hotel from one generation to another, in the institution of certain values and, and cultural aspects of the hotel itself. So some some stuff you rely on interviews. Some stuff is 
out there already and some stuff you just dig and dig and dig and mm-hmm. eventually you strike bone. Uh, I'm going to try to go somewhat chronologically. Um, who built Chateau Marmont and how did it come to be? 1927, a downtown L.A. lawyer named Fred Horowitz had the idea to build a modern luxury apartment building in West Los Angeles. And he crossed the city line, which was Crescent Heights, Laurel Canyon, onto unpaved road. The unpaved road continued all the way to Beverly Hills where the pavement started again. That chunk, which is now West Hollywood, was unincorporated L.A. County. So he chose to build it there because he didn't have as many permit restrictions. He didn't have as steep taxes. And the land was cheaper. And he picked a hillside right right west of, of the city limits so you could walk to the trolley. And he built this folly. It's, it's, it's a, a modern-day, 1927 modern, but modern-day replica of a medieval French chateau. And he thought he had uh, a fortune coming because he had built luxury apartments in a neighborhood that he was gambling would be big someday. And then six months later, the stock market crash and the Great Depression, and he wound up selling it. How, how soon after he built it did he sell it? He opened it in 1929, just a few months before uh, the Black Friday crash of yeah. the stock market, and he sold it in early 1932. He, wow. He, took, he, he ran at it, he, he did, but he wasn't a businessman. He was an attorney. He really didn't know what he was doing, and his partners finally said, you have to sell. The idea for the, the aesthetic, uh, the architectural appeal, did he see a picture? Did he, did he actually visit the place that it's modeled after? He, he had been in France, he and he France. had seen the place, and it had stuck with him. It's a very famous chateau. The mm-hmm. Chateau d'Ambois, it's where uh, Leonardo da Vinci is buried. One monarch of France died there, hitting his head on a, a doorway, lintel. Um, it's, it's a very famous place if, if, if you're into the Chateau of the Loire. Sure. <laughs> this, this is kind of an inelegant question, um, but in as elegant a fashion as you can, take us from Fred Horowitz to Andre Balage. Encapsulate the hotel in the framework of its ownership. Sure. In fact, I, I designed the book around the owners because I'm writing a biography of a thing. Right. But you can't tell me the feelings of a thing or the rise and fall of a thing. But the people who owned it, each of the five principal owners contributed crucially to the character of the hotel. So Fred Horowitz built it. It was his daffy idea. In fact, on the rooftop, there's a capital H in the molding, in the decorative molding. There's no H in the hotel's name. It's, it's, it's for, oh, there's an H in Chateau. But it, it, the H is for Horowitz. He sold it to Albert Smith, who was one of the founders of the movie business. He was a uh, founding partner of Vitagraph Pictures, probably one of the two or three most important studios of the early silent era. He had been out of the movie business by 1932. He saw an opportunity to buy the building and turn it into a hotel. The Olympics were coming to Los Angeles in 32, and he turned it from a residential building to a residential hotel. He didn't do a lot to the interior, but he decorated it. He was able to buy cheap furniture because of panic garage sales throughout the Depression, people selling off everything. And that style of bric-a-brac and like mismatched pieces still persists at the hotel. He turned it into a hotel and he also introduced the movie world to it. He had connections still, even though he'd sold his studio, he knew enough people in Hollywood that he could recommend it as a place to house out-of-towners. 
He sold it in the early 40s to a man named Erwin Brettauer, who was lost to history because of typos in a previous book about the hotel. Um, Brettauer was an anti-fascist German who had gotten his fortune out of Germany before the rise of Hitler, funded anti-fascist resistance efforts from his home in Switzerland, financed films like M and The Testament of Dr. Mabuza, other movies that were anti-fascist by Fritz Lang, G.W. Popscht, and came to America where he invested in real estate. He bought Chateau Marmont. He did things to it. He built the very modern bungalows that are in the back of the property, the most recent structures, most recently built structures on the property. He built the swimming pool prior to his ownership. There was none. And there really was no central gathering place because it was an apartment house. It didn't have a restaurant, didn't have a bar, didn't really have a lobby. So he saw the need for something and he put in the pool. He broke the color barrier. Chateau Marmont was the first hotel in the entertainment world to allow people of any race to stay. Sidney Poitier was in the New York Times in 1960 saying he was staying at Chateau Marmont with his family because no other hotel in Beverly Hills or Hollywood would have them. Um, black entertainers used to stay in South Central. And, you know, Brett Tower was not a sentimental man. He sold the hotel off to the highest bidder in the early 1960s. And there was a period where... It could have been a teardown. It was sold in 1975 to a man named Ray Sarlot, who was a developer. And I think he bought it with an eye toward just leveling it and building a bunch of condos on the property. But he was going through a divorce and he moved in and he fell in love with the place. And he saved it. He saved it from the wrecking ball. He held on to it. Because from, he lived in it. He lived there and he saw it. He, he, he appreciated the history. He appreciated the beauty of it. Even though it was dilapidated during a lot of the years he owned it, he was able to keep the bones solid. And he sold it in 1990 to Andre Balage, who was wealthy by inheritance from his father, who was a, a, a pioneer in biochemistry and, and uh, biomedical uh, research. And... Balage had been in the nightclub business in New York and then briefly in Los Angeles, and he recognized Chateau Marmont and the Sunset Strip as undervalued. He bought it. He has been investing a lot of money in it for the past 28, 30 years, and he has done a great job. It's, it's more luxurious, more glamorous, better known, and more lucrative, more profitable than it's ever been under his rule. And he's the longest tenured owner, correct? Correct. Uh, uh, prior to him, um, Brett Tower owned it for 20 years. Balaj is, is pushing 30. In researching for this book, what story or anecdote stood apart from the others? There's a lot, but what for you personally was resonated? Erwin Brett Tower was a very interesting character, and he was completely lost. And it's hard to understand, without finding him, how the hotel became a haven for a certain type of person, a certain type of activity. And that was interesting to me. A, the story of his life alone, and B, that a German banker should be the guy who makes the place safe for everyone Interesting. during World War II era. That was fascinating. I was also really tickled to find that John Cheever had stayed at the hotel, the great American novelist who we don't think of at all as a California guy. And he wrote a story which no one previously had identified as being about Chateau Marmont, but it clearly is about Chateau Marmont. And it was published in The New Yorker and widely anthologized. And 
when I when I learned that Cheever had been there, I found these great stories about his. You know, he wrote diaries and letters, and he talks about his stay. And it's just a portrait of a fish out of water staying there at a time when it's not necessarily a glamorous hotel. Yeah, yeah, sure. There's a lot of fish out of water. Um, there's a pull quote in the book from Sofia Coppola. By the way, that movie somewhere in uh, came out in 2008. I saw it in theaters, and that was the first time that I ever learned about the hotel. I was a student uh, someplace else, and I was immediately drawn to the the visual of the hotel. So it was a great portrayal of the the hotel as the character in that movie. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, there's a pull quote you have where she says it's sort of a rite of passage for an actor to live at the Chateau Marmont. It means you've made it, but you're still down to earth. Can you parse that a bit and rifle off a few names that fit the description? The Chateau was always home for people who wanted to work in Hollywood, Hollywood, but not quote-unquote go Hollywood. And that started way back in the 30s, but particularly after World War II, when the method actors from New York and the actors' studios started coming out here, they all considered themselves New Yorkers, and my place is in the theater, and I'm just here to make some money and go back. So Montgomery Clift, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward... Uh, Rip Torn and Geraldine Page, you know, serious actors who wound up being great movie stars. But when they first got into the business, they stayed at the Chateau as a way of showing that they didn't quite participate. They, they had one eye on Hollywood and one on the door out. Later on, it became the bad boy place during the Brat Pack era. The likes of Stephen Dorff, who, who appears in Sofia Coppola's film, had actually stayed at Chateau Marmont when he was young. John Cusack, Robert Downey Jr., Anthony Michael Hall, that whole generation of actors, for them it was like this groovy old Hollywood place that didn't mind if you partied into the night. And it was a rite of passage. It was before you bought your house... You stayed at the chateau and it was cheap enough in those days and you had your kitchen and you had your living room in every unit because it used to be an apartment. You could live there for months on end and not go broke. If you tried that now, you'd you'd run out of coins really fast. And the reverse also happened. There's an historian there about, uh, I believe, a Scarlett Johansson who lived in the Chateau Marmont because she sold her house because it felt too lonely to live there. So there's a there was a reverse thing happening before you buy your house and in some instances in between houses. Yeah, yeah. Keanu Reeves was one of the last people to keep a really long residency at the hotel. He he stayed there on and off for years. Um, I think he would go off on location to shoot and put his things in storage and he'd come back and maybe he'd move back into the unit where he was or maybe he'd take a different unit. But for the most part, like it used to be a place where writers would come and stay for right. months. Not anymore. It used to be affordable and it's yeah. gone through this genesis or through this evolution. And um, Andre Balazs is largely, largely responsible for that, right? Making it into a exclusive sort of, they even have a uh, a term where they don't call them VIPs. They're they're called person privé, right? And they rank you know. them within that as well. Yeah, yeah. He's he. Balaj is really keen on taking care of his best customers, yeah. and best can mean biggest spending or best known. Um, they're both true, and he's he's been brilliant. He's been nothing but good for the hotel. He um, came into a semi dilapidated 
property and he turned it into a real bijou hotel. I love the story that when he bought the hotel and first came to see it after he bought it, he saw a construction crane taking the roof off and he thought, oh my God, what have I done? And then he realized it was a fake roof. Oliver Stone was filming the doors at Chateau Marmont and he built a fake roof set to have his actors, you know, pretend to be Jim Morrison and the doors cavorting on the rooftop. Right. That's a great one. Um, you mentioned the decay years, and you also you also briefly touched on that the prior owners wanted to tear it down. Why why was that on the table? Like why was it was it as was it as basic as economics? Like, yeah, yeah. I okay. mean, the, the building the building is an impractical building in many ways. You know, it was built in the 1920s. It has a 43 car garage filled with pilings, so no person can drive their own car in and out of the garage. You must use the valet. Um, the rooms are all different. Each apartment by by Fred Horowitz's command to his architect. Most apartment buildings, you know, room room 202 and room 302 just above it are, are identical layouts, not Chateau Marmont. Um, and then it started to, you know, become not an eyesore, but it was seedy. You know, duct tape on the, on the carpeting, and if something broke, it only got fixed if people needed it. Um, there's a wonderful quote from Eve Babbitts, the great writer in the book, and she says... If something was off-white at Chateau Marmont, it's because it was originally white. (laughs) There was no such color (laughs) as off-white. And there was also a move to level the Sunset Strip. The L.A. County supervisors wanted to build a freeway that would cut from the San Fernando Valley over Laurel Canyon to the airport. The stretch of La Cienega that feels like a freeway where you can see oil derricks, that is the only piece of that freeway that was built. It was going to cut right through this neighborhood, right up the street here. Crescent Heights would have been a freeway. But the kids started congregating on the Sunset Strip in the 60s to see all these great bands. You went up and down the street, you could see the Doors, the Birds, the Mamas and the Papas, Sonny and Cher, the Mothers of Invention, one after another. And when they tried to get the kids to leave by enforcing curfew laws and underage dancing and drinking laws, the kids protested. And the protests drew enough attention that the development plans went away. But during that window of time, every property around here was really, you know, had to, had to make itself viable or face the threat of disappearing. Um, just just down the street here was Ch- uh, Garden of Allah, the great hotel from the silent era, the Chateau Marmont before there was Chateau Marmont. That got knocked down to, to, to and replaced with a bank. And now that bank is being threatened. And ironically, the preservationists are saying, no, this bank is historically the important. The Chase Bank right there, yeah. right? The, uh, the, the the one with the wavy roof yeah, just the here on roof. the corner. Yeah, it's a chase. Yeah, it, it, it was a great Western bank back in the day. Right. And um, yeah, people are, are, are agitating to preserve that. Yeah. But no one stood up for Garden of Allah in, in this time we're talking about. So anything around here was sort of, you know, ha- facing, facing a judgment about whether it would survive. And Chateau Marmont was no different. Interesting. Yeah, the uh, bank, I believe they lost. I believe this, uh, it's not going to be considered a historic, so it is subject to demo. Yeah, yeah, I believe they're going to preserve like some of the roof or do some, so there'll be some... They'll incorporate it. Yeah, like... Whatever uh, that means. As, as a thematic element, like yeah. they'll echo it in the design of the new building. It's a Frank Geary building. No right. one's going to know what it looks like anyhow, even while they're staring at it. It's true. Yeah, it's going to happen right right over there, actually. Hopefully not soon <laughs> uh, for sound purposes. Um, 
There are only 63 rooms. That kind of, it kind of just doesn't sound like a lot. I know it wasn't originally envisioned to be a hotel, but why so small? What was the thought there? And has it evolved over the years or is it still 63 it started as 43. Okay. And then um, they can't do anything about the main building, but they've bought bungalows. They bought a couple of apartment courts that were on property adjacent to it. Two different owners bought a chunk of those, and one owner built two more units. And that's it. You know, it's it's like Manhattan. You can't – there's no land around it that you can build on. Right. Um and the fact that it's small, I mean, there's more than 63 rooms on a single floor of the Plaza Hotel in New York. Um, the fact that it's small makes it private, makes it exclusive, makes it mysterious. It, beca- it went from being a liability, we don't have enough guests to, to turn a profit, to being a, a value added. Ah, Scarcity. Yeah, it's exclusive. And if, it's, if, if there aren't many rooms and they're not gorgeous, well... Lots of luck. But if they're nice and if people want to rub against the legend of the place, 63 rooms is like people are lining up for that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's no shortage of people influxing through there. I can tell you that from firsthand experience. You used an expression that I liked, uh, cultural continuity. What are the closest things to Chateau Marmont in places like New York, San Francisco, London? Like what are the equivalents or are there? There, there are hotels in all of those cities that, that have similar status. Uh, the Chelsea Hotel in New York um, opened in the 19th century as an arts colony and goes right through, you know, Sid Vicious murdering his girlfriend. And, you know, always Dylan Thomas, William Burroughs, Patti Smith, Bob Dylan, lots of people live there. Um, in London, um, there are there are places... You know, London has the great tradition of private gentlemen's clubs, and a lot of those have been dedicated to people in the arts, and they have similar stories to Chateau Marmont. There are there are some in every town. I, I live in Portland, Oregon, and we have a steakhouse that's been around since the 20s, the 1920s. And you just know when you go in this place, oh, man. Every governor of Oregon and every trailblazer has eaten in here. Stuff and has happened here. It's cool, you yeah. know. You, you you go, you know, to wash up in the in the in the restroom, and you you just sense like, oh, you know, I'm not the first guy here. It's cool. Bar Marmont was wildly popular. Um, why did it shut down? You know, it's a different business. Uh, running a bar it wasn't physically connected to the hotel, um, and it's an awkward hillside. So, you know, to to make the connection, there was no like back room that went up into the main hotel. Bar Marmont was actually on Sunset. I think they ran it for about twenty years ish, and it was time, that's, time that's, was that's up. Actually, actually, a really good run when you say it that way. Yeah, yeah you so know, well. and and. Uh, you have to decide at a certain point how many businesses you have. And I think Andre Balaj, he started to divest himself of some properties. He was the chairman of the Standard Hotels Group. He founded it and he recently left the board. Um, you know, he's in his 60s. He's got a young family and he has other things to do than run a saloon. Sure. And someone actually runs Chateau Marmont. He's not the day-to-day guy. Oh, or, no, no, yeah. no. He is, he is the money man, and right. he's there often. He's, the you know, in many ways the face of the hotel, but he has professional managers and people who know catering and 
parking and you know how to run a household service and do the do the owners um the, the actual physical structure do they retain like a residence is there like a is there like an owner's room or space or is that not a thing there has been for some of them over the years on and off i have no doubt that there's always a room for mr balaj when he comes in from new york if he cares to stay there um ray sarlat who owned the p- hotel previously to balaj lived at the hotel for some years while he was divorcing and then restoring the place. Um, And there have been hotel staff who've retired, who were given a room to sort of help them through their declining years. Interesting. Um, You know, the hotel was not in demand, and and it was a tiny place for a big city and 43 rooms at, at its start. And I think there was a sense of family, like we are different from other places and we will take care of our own. Hmm. In 2018, um, I think you start the book with this too, Jay-Z and Beyonce threw a party in the garage of Chateau Marmont. Were you able to determine why or some context behind the inspiration? Well, why is because you got the, the most famous couple in the world and the most famous hotel in town on Oscar night. So it's, it would be surprising if they didn't consider Chateau Marmont. But the garage. That, that's the genius thing. Okay. They People were invited to the party, and they were told no bodyguards, no phones, no paparazzi, and we're not going to tell you where the party is until the night of the event. So on Oscar night, some some people at the Oscars were getting a text or a, a, an email saying this is where the party is, and it's Chateau Marmont. They're like, oh, great, we're going to Jay and Beyonce's party. It's going to be up on the roof. This is going to be sweet. They get to the hotel, and the garage is closed, and they're sent around to the back. Normally, you enter through the garage entrance. Instead, they get sent around to the back, and they enter the kitchen entrance. And when they do, they're directed to the downward staircase, not to the elevators to take them up. And they're like, what? And they go into the garage, and the garage there is truly subterranean. (laughs) I mean, this guy built an underground garage on a dirt road in 1927. He was crazy, but a genius, too. Anyway, Jay and and B had, had... turned the the garage into a casino. Um, They redecorated. They had to. They decorated. Never mind redecorated. Um, And there are pictures that that circulated on Instagram afterwards, and you see it looks great, and people are just loving it. They're at a really exclusive party in the unlikeliest place. It's like the bottom of the top. You know, that was a genius stroke. Yeah, and they're obviously... I'm sure they're connected with uh, Balage in terms of friendship, and uh, it was uh, he, yeah. he, he had to have been in on that. I, I I don't know. I mean, someone had to approve this unusual use yeah. of the hotel, and Oscar Week is a hugely important week at that hotel. Um, there are many parties sure. there, and and many um, luxury clothing brands and couture designers take suites to uh, take care of their clients there. There's a PR company in this building, actually, that rents uh, one of their units here. is actually a closet space for the dresses, but they rent a space there to get the, to prep their clients. Yeah. So, yeah. Everyone knows the place. Yeah. You tell a star, meet me at Chateau Marmont. That's like, you know, their, their clubhouse. They're comfortable. Yeah. Um, so Balage would have known about it. But sure. the staff of the hotel did not know who was throwing the party. For the preparation, all the the internal communications referred to them as Mr. and Mrs. Host. Interesting. That's a great story. And also, like, I, it's a, I think you echoed this too, like, they could have gone anywhere, but they picked this one specific place, which is a real, uh, 
like the best kind of shout out you could give a place. Yeah, yeah, you know? it's it's game recognizing game. These, these there you are, go. Yeah, I, was, I was thinking that they are at the top. This thing is as, as exclusive and ritzy as you can get. And where else would they go? Yeah, love it. Do you have your sights set on your next subject? I do. Um, actually, I have two things. I have a book of poems coming out next year that are based on obits from the New York Times in 2016. I gave myself this daffy task. I said every morning in the paper, there's a prompt for a poem in the obituary pages. I'm going to do a poem a day for a year. That's insane. I did manage to write 100 poems in, out of 365, but 2016 was the year that everybody died. David Bowie, Prince, George Michael, Leonard Cohn, Merle Haggard. In two weeks, Muhammad Ali, Gordie Howe, Arnold Palmer, John Glenn, Fidel Castro, Nancy Reagan, Antonin Scalia. It was just madness. It ended with Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds. So I have this book of poems about you know, these these world-famous people, but also the guy who chose the at sign for email addresses because it was the least used character on his keyboard, things like that. Interesting. So um, you wrote a poem based on the people that died or inspired by the obituary or based on them? Both. both. Uh, all three. Sometimes okay. it's direct address to them, an ode, you did yeah. this, you did that. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's like, hmm, it's funny to think that this was once the case. Yeah. Um, Dolph Fashion. Shades, the NBA all-star. Um, okay. You know, uh, that poem says more or less, it's just as unusual to think that there was a time Jews dominated basketball as to think there was a time Jews named their children Adolf. <laughs> and yet you were both. Yeah. You know, and so it's a joke, but it's also, you know, a, a joke about history. Right. And then after that, I have a proper, <laughs> a proper job. <laughs> I'm writing a book about the women pioneers of stand-up comedy. Okay. Phyllis Diller, Joan Rivers, and Mira... Elaine May, Toadie Fields, some forgotten figures, and how women created space for themselves in what had been an, until the 50s an all-male tradition. It's slightly inspired by the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but it's also inspired by Me Too and the idea that there are still doors left to be kicked open. And these women were trying to kick open doors at a time in, in, and in a profession when they had nobody behind them. They were on their own, each of them. Sure. They, they appreciated each other's work, but they weren't a rat pack. They weren't uh, a posse. They were individual heroines, in my view. Great. Love it. And the, back to the poem thing real quick. Are, are they haiku length or are they like... Are they flow? Are they like some are short, but, okay. but some are quite long. The first one was inspired by the death of a woman named Adele Mailer, who was the second wife of Norman Mailer, second of six. Mailer stabbed her in the back at a party in New York in their apartment uh, after she told him that uh, he was no Dostoevsky and had a tiny cock. And he, that one kind of feels like it writes itself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was incensed. I went back and I looked at Norman Mailer's obituary. He stabbed his wife literally, and she's not mentioned till paragraph 23 of his obit. She dies, and his picture is in the paper. Wow. You know, and I'm like, that is wrong. It's, and, it's totally a sign of the times, too. Yeah, and yeah. That's, that's, that was the poem that made me think there might be something here. And some of them are long and some are short. You know, I don't like long poems. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a big fan of haiku. I take my notes when I make notes on any book that I read and I try to haikuify it. Oh, how nice. So that I can remember what I read. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, why people write poems. You can remember them. They rhyme totally, and have meter. They totally. have rhythm. They have Absolutely. flow. You can remember lyrics to songs yeah. because they're poems. Yes. But you can't remember a passage from a book unless it's 
lyrical. When you see a slam poet and they're reading, you know, like 2,000 words, they're reciting it off the top of their head and they're getting it like comma perfect. Yeah. That's because it began as a poem. Totally. 100%. Have you been reading anything good recently? Hmm. I just picked up randomly a William Kennedy novel. I'm a big fan of his. He wrote Ironweed and uh, Billy Fallon's Greatest Game. And I found a book of his I didn't know called The Flaming Corsage. Read it on a plane and gulped it up. My favorite book these days is uh, called The Book of Delights by a writer named Ross Gay. And he gave himself the task of writing down every day something that delighted him. And he didn't publish a year's worth of these But it's a book about the nature of joy and what brings us pleasure and trying to find delight in the ordinary. So one of the things he talks about is high fives from random strangers. And he just meditates on that for a paragraph or two or pissing in your garden, you know, and and it's just really wonderful because it's just like a new way. It's it's almost like uh, meditation. It like gives you an experience of the world that you see every day and don't really think about. Great. Um, Favorite independent bookstore? Powell's City of Books in Portland, Oregon, and I defy anyone to tell me otherwise. Have you been to, have you been in Portland your whole life? No, no, I grew up in New York. I've been in Portland since 92. Okay, been there. You're, you're, that's home. I'm an Oregonian. Yeah, Yeah. you're an Oregonian. Very cool. Yeah, Powell's is great. Um, I spent some time in Seattle and I went down there to Portland to visit a friend and we, it's like one of the things you do if you're literary, you like books, you go to Powell's. Yeah, it's, it's, institution. You know, and they have, I mean, their, their tiny bookshop is bigger than most bookstores that you sure. go into in any other city. But the city of books is amazing because say you're interested in, I don't know, William Carlos Williams, the poet. You go to that space on the shelf and they're going to have everything by him and they're going to have the new editions and the used editions and the old used editions next to each other. You get to pick the cover you want, the condition, the price point, And it's, it's, it's a gigantic place. It's a city block. Yeah. The book is The Castle on Sunset. Sean Levy, thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Book Stories. Book Stories is brought to you by Alternate Thursdays in Los Angeles. Special thanks to Savannah Wright for production assistance. I'm Vic Singh. Thanks for listening.